Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to take up Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28 to the end of the chapter. We're going to see how the Melchizedek order, of which Jesus is the prime member of, how the Melchizedek order is superior than the Aaronic order, the Levitical system which has Aaron as the high priest, is inferior now. Melchizedek's order with Jesus at the head of it is superior. And our, our context is this. In the first ten verses of chapter 7, the author talks about how Jesus was like Melchizedek. And so he's continuing this discussion now, focusing on how Melchizedek is superior to Aaron. And, of course, that means Jesus is superior to Aaron. That means Jesus is superior to the Mosaic law, which means, Hebrew Christians, don't backslide and go back to Judaism, but hang in there during this time of persecution before AD 70 when you will be released from your persecution when that generation of wicked Jews would pass from them as Jesus promised on the Olivet Discourse, and then you're going to be free from these persecutors, and then you won't be tempted anymore to go back into Judaism. So we continue with the theme of the whole book of Hebrews, which is Jesus is superior to the law. We start in verse 11. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? Perfection, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, God never meant for his completed plan of salvation to end with the Mosaic law. It was never meant to make us perfect, to make us holy, to make us glorified, redeemed and so forth, justified, sanctified. That's not the purpose of the Mosaic Law. It was to show that we were sinners and we needed a Savior. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible translation here says, for under it, under the law, excuse me, for under it, under the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. Now, technically speaking, that's not really true because the people were under the law first and then the priesthood was created. As Adam Clark points out, here's the option, here's a way to solve that. Translate under as on account of. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on account of it, on account of the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. In other words, the purpose of the, the law was to to appoint the Levitical priest. That makes sense. In fact, although most translations do translate it as under, I found the New American Standard says this. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, on the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law, that makes a lot more sense, I think. So that's just a minor technical problem. So if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest? Well, who's that another priest? That, of course, is Jesus. Now, Jesus was not qualified to be a Levitical priest. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was not from the tribe of Levi. And a Levitical priest had to be from the tribe of Levi, and more particularly from the family of Aaron. But Jesus had higher qualifications. He was from the tribe of Melchizedek. Now, we've talked about in the last audio how Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Jesus is like Melchizedek because he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Salem, he was the king of Salem, Jerusalem. Salem means peace, so Jesus is the king of peace. Melchizedek didn't have a genealogy, so he is without beginning, without end, just like Jesus is a priest forever, without beginning, without end. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, and since Levi is in Abraham's loins, that means Levi, the inferior, is giving ties to Melchizedek, the superior. So Jesus is superior to the Levitical order. Also, Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abraham, who is the father of us all, Jewish and non-Jewish believers. He was also the father of the physical Israelites. And so Jesus gave, and so Melchizedek gave 
a blessing to Father Abraham. Likewise, Jesus gives blessings to all of his people who have the faith of Abraham. So Jesus is clearly in the order of Melchizedek, and he is clearly superior. Now this, another priest who is to appear later, Jesus, is said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. Aaron, of course, was Moses' brother. He was a descendant of Levi. Levi was the patriarch of one of the twelve tribes. The first Levitical high priest was Aaron. He was the first one appointed under the Levitical law. The successor high priest had to have two genealogical qualifications. They had to be of the tribe of Levi, of course, and then more particularly, they had to be of the family of Aaron. Aaron was one of the families of the Levite tribe. We go to Hebrews 7, verse 12. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. Now, notice that word change. It's not just an amendment of the old law. It was a replacement of the old Mosaic law. Hence, we have the need for new covenant theology, in my humble opinion. Now, this covenant theology uh, preached by Reformed theologians who are always saying that, well, Moses is still with us. There's no difference between Moses and what happens in the New Testament except for the ceremony and judicial aspects, which we can split off and and shuffle those off. But the moral law is still the same. No, a change of law, that's it. It's over. You don't divide the law up like that. Now, this would be a radical statement for the Hebrew Christians to hear, A change of law? Oh my gosh, we've been under Moses forever. And it was probably offensive to a lot of them. But the author doesn't care. He didn't care about offending people. He cared about the truth. Now here's the scripture, New Testament scripture, that says there's going to be a replacement of that Old Testament law. Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25. Paul says this, The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law is kapritsky, folks. It was good. It was holy. It served its purpose. It was authored by God. But time has moved on, and it's now defunct as far as its ability to sanction Christians as a moral guide. It is not a rule of life, as Calvin erroneously said. It is There is no third use of the law, as Calvin erroneously said. Our ethics come from Jesus Christ, the new covenant. And Jesus, of course, incorporates a lot of the morals the moral commands of the Old Testament, fine and dandy, that's great. But we obey those moral commands not because Moses promulgated those moral commands, but because Jesus did. There was a change of law, a change from the order of Aaron to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this change might be suggested here by the author in order to answer those who might object, what need is there for a new covenant? We've got an old covenant, we've got Moses. No, no, we've got to have a change of law. Hebrews 7 verse 13. The author continues, For the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now the one he's talking about is Jesus. For Jesus, who's spoken about here, belonged to a different tribe. That would be the tribe of Judah. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was not qualified to be a priest under the order of Levi, but he's still a high priest. So he's got to be some, come from somewhere else. Change of law. Regime change. McKisseldeck's in charge now, not Aaron. No one from this tribe from the tribe of Judah has served at the altar. The reason they didn't because it was illegal to do that under the Mosaic law. But it's all right for Jesus because he's under the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, 14 through 16 says this, Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal command concerning physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible indestructible life. Now, when he says it's evident, it means it's obvious, and it is obvious. These verses are fairly clear. In fact, this whole last section of Hebrews 7, fortunately, is not very difficult. It's very clear. 
what he's talking about. The author is speaking with a lot of confidence, as Adam Clark says. He shows that Jesus, Jesus being from Judah was incontrovertible. The genealogical tables in Matthew and Luke established the point. And of course, those authors had access to the genealogical tables that were still in existence. They weren't destroyed until AD 70. So we know that Jesus came from Judah, not from Levi. Now, modern people might have difficulties reading those genealogies, but ancient people didn't. As Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, they loved genealogies, and they knew that Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi. There was no question in anybody's mind at the time of Hebrews was written, or any other time, that this Messiah was supposed to come from the tribe of Judah. That was clear from Scripture. Lion of Judah on the throne, you know, he's from Judah. That was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 49.10, when Jacob, as he was dying, was blessing the twelve his 12 sons, the future patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, he says this concerning Judah, Genesis 49.10, the scepter, that means the rod that shows that you have the right to rule as a king, the scepter will not depart from Judah, that means King Jesus is going to come from Judah, not from Levi, not from Levi, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff, the staff is just another word, Hebrew parallelism here, another word for scepter. The staff will not depart from between his feet. In other words, he's going to sit there on his throne with the staff between his feet because he's the king until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him until Jesus is king. So obviously, Jesus is king. He's the king from the tribe of Judah. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The king and the priest meet the kingdom, the office of king and the office of priest meet together in Jesus Christ. He was also a prophet too, prophet, priest, and king. Priest and priesthood and kingship were kept jealously separate in the Old Testament law. They were not merged together until Jesus did it. Verse 15, the author says, and this becomes clearer. What becomes clearer? That there must be a change of priesthood, as he mentions in verse 12. That there must be a change of priesthood becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears. Now notice that this is a priest like Melchizedek. A lot of Christians, or some Christians, say that Melchizedek was actually Jesus appearing as a Christophany in the Old Testament to Abraham. Well, no, this verse says he was like Melchizedek. It doesn't say he was Melchizedek. It says he was like Melchizedek. I mean, not to mention the fact, really, Jesus is going to be ruling a city like Salem. Jesus, the Son of God, is going to come down and be a mayor of a city? I don't think so. I think that is a really off-the-wall interpretation of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek in verse 16, Hebrews 7, did not become a priest based on a legal command concerning physical descent. The legal command was the Mosaic requirement that a high priest had to be from the family of Aaron and of the tribe of Levi. Not so, Melchizedek. His qualification was this. He had to have an indestructible life. And that, of course, was Jesus because he never died. He was killed, but he rose again from the dead. Jesus didn't die like Aaron did. Hebrews 7, verse 17 for it has been testified, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For, because, why has it been testified? Quote, Adam Clark says this, in order to show that Jesus was not appointed a priest based on physical descent, as we read in the last verse, because he was not appointed a priest based upon a Levitical command that you had to be from the family of Aaron, because of that it has been testified, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Where has it been testified? Well, it's in Psalm 110.4, which I'll read in a minute. David wrote that psalm, so David could have testified it. It could be the Holy Spirit that testified. It could have been the Scripture that testified. It could have been God that testified. It could have been all of the above. 
So here's the scripture, Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. Forever you are a priest like Melchizedek. Of course, this is a Messianic song that he was referring to the Messiah. This shows that David was himself aware of the significance and mystery of Melchizedek. He mentions him by name. He knew that there was somebody coming that was different than the tribe of Aaron. Now, the fact that David quotes this verse while the Aaronic priesthood was still in effect legally, it shows that Aaron did not replace the Melchizedek priesthood. Because if it did, if Aaron had replaced Melchizedek because Aaron came later, then David wouldn't still be prophesying about it. 500 years after the Aaronic priesthood founded, he's still saying, well, Aaron's here, but there's somebody that's different. There's somebody that's going to be a priest forever. He didn't know his name was Jesus, but he knew it was the Messiah. This priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, is also, the idea is also quoted in Hebrews 5, 6, where the author quotes Psalm 110.4 again, and you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews 7.21, which is coming up four verses later. But he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's quoting Psalm 110.4 again. So this Psalm 110.4 is a big psalm. That Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's no other psalm that's quoted more than Psalm 110. Now, the author here is trying to preclude any apostate Jewish arguments. The argument would run like this. Since the Aaronic priesthood came after Melchizedek, then Aaron replaced Melchizedek, as F.F. Bruce puts it. Because Melchizedek, he met Abraham roughly 2000 B.C. Aaron was established as high priest roughly 1500 B.C. And so the argument says, well, Aaron came later. Well, that which comes later replaces that which comes earlier. But... The author precludes that type of argument, saying, nope, Jesus is a priest forever. <laughs> doesn't matter whether Aaron came later. Forever means before Aaron and after Aaron. Forever, you're a priest. Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. So, verse 18, so the previous command is null, and that means by the virtue of Psalm 110.4 that we just read, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Because of that promise, the previous command is annulled, that forever annuls Aaron, annuls the law of Moses. So the previous command is annulled. Now the command refers to the legal provisions in the Mosaic law concerning priests having to be descended from Levi. That's annulled. And by the way, previous command refers to previous to the time that the author of Hebrews is writing. It's not talking about the first command. Well, that would be Melchizedek. And of course, that's not annulled. It's talking about the Aaronic Mosaic law is annulled previous to the time that the of Hebrew of 8060 something when the book of Hebrews was written. So that previous law, previous to the, to the writer of Hebrews is annulled. And annulled means, as the NIV puts it, set aside it's a technical term used in legal documents. It means to invalidate, to abrogate, to disannul, to cancel. It's Kaputsky, folks. Again, I love to, to contrast that type of language with covenant theologians who say, well, the law's got three parts and only two-thirds of it is annulled, but the moral law continues. That's not what it says. It says the previous command is annulled. It means the Mosaic law is annulled. It's over with for New Testament Christians. We're under the law of Christ now, not under the law of Moses. It was annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. Why is it weak and unprofitable? Because it could not bring us to completion. It could not bring us to perfection. Verse 19 says, for the law perfected nothing. It brings nothing to maturity. It does not continue and perfect our justification, calling, sanctification, 
and glorification. That process which is spoken of, I think, in the book of Romans that talks about our our goal to be conformed to the image of Christ. The law doesn't do that. It perfects nothing. It doesn't perfect anybody. It's weak. It's unprofitable. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, the law did have a purpose. It was to point out we were sinners, but the law could not stop us from being sinners. Let's look at that purpose of the law. Romans 3.20-21, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Jesus gives us the right not to be sinners anymore. So God's righteousness has been revealed through Christ, which was attested by the law and the prophets, which pointed, for, pointed ahead to Christ. The knowledge of sin comes through the law, but that's it. As Adam Clark puts it, it, the law, had no energy. It communicated none. It had no spirit to minister. It required perfect obedience, but furnished no assistance to those who were under it. Contrast the weakness of that law to what the author of Hebrews said about Jesus Jesus' priesthood is based on the power of an indestructible life. Jesus gives us power to live the way that God meant for us to live. The law can't do that. And anybody that thinks it can is a legalist and is doomed to frustration, condemnation, and moral defeat. Continuing in verse 19, the law has perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced. Better? How is Jesus better? He's better than Aaron. He's better than Levi. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than anybody. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than, he's superior. So why would you want to leave Jesus and go back to Moses? A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law doesn't keep you near to God. The law keeps you away from God. That's the whole purpose of the law. If you read the law, it's all, all about separation and you can't come into the temple because you've got this defilement all of which is to symbolize your sin. You can't get close to God. You're shut out from him. But with Jesus, we can get near to God. Aaron not going to let you do that. Aaron's just going to say, stay away. You're sinners. The law points out that you're a sinner, that you can't get close to God. Jesus said, yeah, you're a sinner, all right, but I've forgiven that sin, and you can come near to me. Near, near, near. Nearer my God to thee. A better hope Jesus has introduced through which we draw near to God, the God that made you, you can commune with. You can have a personal relationship with through your high priest Jesus. Hebrews 7 verses 20 and 21. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. None of this happened without an oath. That's referring to the fact that the Melchizedek priesthood was backed up, not only with the promise of God, but with an oath backing up that promise, as we mentioned in the previous chapter. I think it was chapter 6. Others became priests. That would be the Levitical priesthood. They became priests without an oath. Now, here's an interesting historical fact. It wasn't until New Testament times under the Sadducees that an oath was produced for the high priest. And that oath was not sworn at his investiture, but rather it was an oath afterwards affirming his faithful execution of the office. And so that was added after the law. And that was in New Testament times. This is according to John Gill. But until then, the... And, and at all times, the Levitical priests were not sworn in with an oath. They were just appointed. But Jesus had an oath behind him. Where was that oath? Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back forever. You are a priest like Melchizedek. And that forever, by the way, well, the author of the book of Hebrews in verse 21 is actually quoting Psalm 110.4. And in it, 
He says, you are, a, in that quotation, he says, you are a priest forever. This emphasizes that Jesus never died. Aaron died. Jesus never died. Jesus is superior. Hebrews 7, verse 22. So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. The better covenant, of course, is the new covenant. He's the guarantee because God swore it with an oath. And so Jesus has become a guarantee. He guarantees it's going to come to pass. He guarantees that the new covenant will bring you salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, and all that comes with the new covenant. Jesus guarantees that. We can remember three Ps concerning the Melchizedek priesthood from this section of Scripture that we're talking about in Hebrews 7, 11 through this verse here, 22. First of all, Jesus brings perfection. He's a perfect high priest. That's in verse 11 and 18 and 19. Jesus is a permanent high priest. The second P, Hebrews 7, 15 through 17, he's a priest forever. He's permanent. And he, we are promised, he, he gives us a promise that the new covenant will be guaranteed right here in this verse because God's oath is his promise. So we get perfection, permanence, and promise from Jesus, our high priest, all of which or none of which Aaron could give us. God's guarantee is that he will indeed save us eternally. Folks, that is good news. Real good news. Now, verse 22 says that Jesus guarantees a better covenant. How is the new covenant better than the old? Just in summary fashion. Well, the old covenant gave promises of temporal things. Land, offspring, blessings. But the new covenant, the promises were not of temporal things, but were pardon of sin and were and contained a promise of eternal salvation. The old covenant could not take away sin, but the new covenant, on the contrary, could take away sin. So that's why it's a better covenant, in a, in a word, in a nutshell. Now here's a side note here about the word covenant. Here the word is covenant. That Greek word, diatheke, can be translated either as covenant or testament. And in different situations, in different places, the different English translations differ sometimes on how to translate it. And there's a reason for that, which I'll mention in a minute. But first of all, what is a covenant? Covenant is a mutual agreement in which the parties consent, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. That's just a fancy word for a contract. And of course, now of course, a New Testament contract invo involved a lot more formalities than we have today in modern contracts. Today, all you need to do is agree and have some consideration passed between the parties. But back then, by golly, you had to have a salt. You had to have a meal with salt present. You had to have an animal sacrificed and an oath taken if you break this covenant may God do to you what happened to this animal here. May you be split in half. And it was very serious business. There was a lot of formalities involved. But still, basically, it's an agreement between two parties. And sometimes it was a one-sided agreement between a conquering nation and a, a suzerainty, a, a nation that was, a, a, that was under the suzerain nation, under the top dog nation. But still, basically, a covenant between two parties. Now, testament is not like that. A testament is a will. Same Greek word now between both of these. And we know what a will is. But now the interesting thing is, is that there has to be a death. Whether you translate that word as covenant or testament, there has to be a death. In the case of the will, the testament, the testator has to die or the will is absolutely of no effect. That's today true in today's law. But if a covenant, you had to have someone to die too. Because remember those animals that are sacrificed? There has to be a curse put on those animals. If if you don't keep this promise, may, may, this animal, may you die like this animal is split in half. So, in the case of the new covenant, Jesus was the sacrifice at the covenant. Covenant made by God with his people, Jesus dies. Either way, Jesus has to die. Hebrews 9, 16 through 17 uses diatheke in the sense of a will. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. 
For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never enforced while the one who made it is living. Now, most of the English translations agree with the Holman Christian Study Bible and translate diatheke there as will. However, the New American Standard translates it as covenant. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. Now, I don't understand how the NASB translates it that way, because why is a covenant valid only when the one who made it dies. It says, for a, covenant is val- is, for a covenant is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Why not? When a covenant maker makes a covenant, it's enforced, is it not? So to me, that's a big problem, and most of the English translations don't use covenant. They, they use will. But the J.P. Green literal translation use co- uses covenant, and the Young's literal translation uses covenant. So I don't know. But I do know this, that even though the English translations differ, the English translations differ. There is one thing that is true of both a will and a covenant. Someone has to die, and that someone is Jesus. If it's a will, the testator has to die, and Jesus dies and then gives us our inheritance. If it's a covenant, the sacrificial animal has to die during the making of the covenant, and in the new covenant, Jesus was that sacrifice. So either way, it's an interesting translation problem. I really don't have the solution to that yet. I don't understand the backstory of of the controversy over the translation. I did read an article on it once put it on my do list which i haven't gotten to yet but at any rate that's neither here nor there we'll go on to hebrews 7 verses 23 through 25 now many have become priests now the holman christian study bible here puts in brackets levitical priests which most of the english translations don't do that and it doesn't make any sense for them to do that i don't understand why they did it so i'm going to leave it out now many have become priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office but because he jesus remains forever He, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he, Jesus, is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he, Jesus, always lives to intercede for them. I'm adding that Jesus is there, of course, to the pronouns. Now, many have become priests. That would be many common priests. If you put Levitical in there, many have become Levitical priests. I don't think the contrast is between ordinary priest and Jesus. The contrast is between the high priest Aaron and Jesus. So I think it means many... It makes more sense to say, now many have become high priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. The many would be the high priest who in temporal succession inherited the high priesthood starting with Aaron working on down, as Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. So that's how I'm going to take it. Many have become high priests, although it's not in the Greek, it's just many have become priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office, in office obviously. There was another reason not mentioned by the offer author why many of these high priests didn't stay in office is because a lot of times the high priesthood was bought and sold (laughs) during the second temple as john gill points out you can read all about this in the story of the run-up to the jewish war and the hasmonean dynasty disaster with antiochus epiphanes and all he put he antiochus epiphanes the fourth put two different high priests in what were their names on onanias was one i forgot the other one but at any rate the very famous incident where the priesthood was just like a revolving doors. The Jews themselves say it changed every 12 months, not by death, but just by purchase, if you will. Not so with Jesus. His priesthood lasts forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, therefore, he is always able to save. He's always able to save us. Well, what does always mean here? Well, other translations have he is completely able to save us. The Greek word is pantale there, and it means completely. 
We are not partially forgiven. We are not partially saved. We are not partially redeemed, but rather we are completely forgiven. We are completely saved, and we're completely redeemed by Jesus. And that makes sense, but the translation here is always, which has a matter of time, and so there's a translation problem here. But if we translate it completely, he's able to completely save us. Jameson Fawcett Brown agrees with that. He says he's able to save us altogether perfectly so that nothing should be wanting afterwards forever. The KGV has, he is able to save us to the uttermost. That means completely, without any part of us remaining unsaved. And that's reasonable. But now the Holman Christian Study Bible has, he's always able to save us. Adam Clark agrees with that translation. He says the phrase, to pantelis means to all intents, degrees, and purposes, and always, and in and through all times, places, and circumstances. For all this is implied in the original word. But in and through all times seems to be the particular meaning here because of what follows. And he's talking about what follows is the last clause of verse 25. There's another always there. And you put the two in parallel, and so always seems to, seems to have a temporal meaning rather than a meaning of perfection. Well, it doesn't matter. Let's just say the word has both connotations. He is always able. It means that no matter what time you come to him, Old Testament, New Testament, he's able to save us, or he's completely able to save us. It doesn't matter. He's able to do it. He's able to save. That means to bring, of course, into eternal salvation. But not everybody, not everybody, he's able to save. His name, Jesus, actually means Savior, as Jameson Fawcett points out. So salvation is a big part of the Christian religion because Jesus' his name means Savior. And, of course, to save something means, to save somebody means you have to save them from something. What? Hell? Death and hell? Now, there's a condition attached. He is able to completely, to the uttermost, save those who come to God through him. Not everybody, but those who come to God through him only. He's only going to save the elect. He's not going to save everybody. There's no idea of universal salvation here. John 17:9 says, I pray for them. Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, but for those you, the Father, have given me, the Son, because they are yours. That's who he's going to save completely to the uttermost. He says in verse 25, he's always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Since he always lives, he's always able to save. If you take always in the sense of temporal, and which you have to in the second, the second always, he always lives. That's talking about temporally. There never was a time when he was not able to save us. Again, that argues that the first always is always liable to save. That should be temporal too, as the argument that I was just made. made. But since he always lives to intercede, that means he's always up there at the right hand of God interceding for us poor sinners down here. Now this idea that he's always interceding for us seems to me to cut against the idea of losing one's salvation because if one becomes unborn again and loses his salvation, Jesus is not always interceding for him anymore. In fact, his previous intercession for him when the person was still saved is ineffective because the guy lost his salvation. What kind of intercession is that? I'm praying for this guy and he's my son, but he's sinning now. I'm going to intercede for him. Oh, lost his salvation, can't pray for him anymore. Is he always interceding for him then? I just thought I'd throw, out, throw that out in case an Armenian might be listening to this. It's the sort of thing we need to think about. Are you always able to intercede for us? Here's some scriptures where it talks about Jesus interceding, praying for his believers. Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not be failed. Now, that'd be nice to have the Son of God praying for you, wouldn't it? And, and Peter's faith did not fail. Not ultimately. He denied Jesus three times, but ultimately became one of the leaders of the early Christian church and was martyred by being hung upside down. Tradition has it in a bucket of oil, burning oil. 
Romans 8, 33 through 34, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. He is now at the right hand of God where we are seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places, and he is there, and he is interceding for us. He's saying, Dan Trotter, I'm praying for you to the Father. You need help? I'm going to pray for you. Now you think about that. That's what it means to have a high priest who intercedes for you. Now that word intercede, according to Adam Clark, has rich meanings. Meanings. It can mean to come or to meet a person on any cause, whatever. It can mean to intercede, pray for, to entreat in the behalf of another. It can mean to defend or vindicate a person. I'm defending John Q. Christian before the throne of grace. I am vindicating John Q. Christian against the accusations of Satan. It can mean to commend. I am commended, commending John Q. Christian before the throne of grace. It can mean to furnish any kind of assistance or help. I am helping John Q. Christian by going to the throne of grace. Hebrews 7 verse 26. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Five adjectives defining Jesus as our high priest. First of all, he's holy. He is the antitype of the Levitical high priest who had holy to the Lord written on the turban that was on his forehead. Exodus 28:36 says this, You are to make a pure gold medallion and engrave it like the engraving of a seal, colon, holy to the Lord. That's what you engrave on that, on that golden medallion, and you hang it on the turban with a blue cord, and you put it on the head of the high priest, because the high priest is a type of a holy high priest. And, of course, Jesus is holy, and that high, the type is not anything like the antitype. The antitype is the substance. The type is the shadow, because the high priest was a sinner. Our high priest is actually holy, totally separate from sin, and consecrated to God. That's what holy means, separated from the world, dedicated to God. So Jesus far exceeds in holiness the Levitical high priest. Now note that all five of these qualifications could apply to the Old Testament high priest. Let's do that real quick. But we remember that's, the, that's just the type, the shadow. The high priest was supposed to be holy, dedicated to the Lord. He had a little gold badge on his head saying that. He was innocent, which means he had to be ritually pure. He had to, couldn't be, touch a dead person or he couldn't eat some, a fish or, uh, excuse me, shrimp or pork before he went in and did his, did his high priestly ministry. He was undefiled. That means he was the same thing. He wasn't Levitically unclean. He was separated from sinners. He was a special person only that could go into the Holy of Holies. Sinners couldn't go in there. And he was exalted above the heavens. Now, that's a little problem to say that the Aaronic high priest was exalted above the heavens. But that may just be a reference to the exceeding dignity of the high priesthood. So we could say that all five of these things applied to Aaron. But, oh, it's so much easier to say it applies to Jesus. He was innocent. As John Gill says, Jesus was without guile in his mouth or malice in his heart. The NIV says he was blameless. The KGV says he was harmless. He was undefiled. He was not defiled with the sin of Adam because he was perfectly pure without sin. He was separated from sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus in his earthly life had no social connections with sinners. He did that all the time, but it means he was totally separate from the sin of Adam. He had no part in that sin. So he was separated from sinners. He didn't participate in the sin of Adam. And exalted above the heavens, well, yeah, he was risen from the dead, ascended into the heavens, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Exalted above the heavens. What does that mean, above the heavens? Well, as John Gill says, above the visible heavens, the airy and starry heavens. The airy and starry heavens were heaven number one and heaven number two. In the ancient world, they had the idea, concept of three heavens. The first was the atmosphere, the airy heaven. 
where the birds fly. The second heaven was outer space, where we send up rockets, where you can't breathe. It's where the stars are, the starry heavens, as Gil puts it. And the third heaven is where God lives. And so Jesus went above the birds and above the stars, and he went all the way to where God lives. I was just listening to a YouTube video by Bruce Gore on Revelation, and he was talking about how the ancient world used this terminology. And he said, and I, I got the impression that he was saying that, you know, we don't do that anymore. But I don't, I'm not so sure that's true. I mean, he was saying that the heaven being up was just a concept that they had in the Old Testament times. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. When Jesus went up, when he ascended in Luke chapter, in Acts chapter 1, he ascended. That's up, not only to ancient people, that's up to me in the, in the present. That's up to everybody. So... I'm not so sure we can't say heaven is spatially up. I'm, I'm not dead sure about that. I've always often wondered about that. But at any rate, that's just a theological musing I don't have the answer to. The point is, is that Jesus is above everything earthly, everything created. He's with heaven and he's interceding for you and me. We go to verse 27, Hebrews 7. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. Now, why doesn't he need to offer sacrifices? Because Jesus is sinless. He doesn't need an offer a sacrifice for himself. Now, he does offer sacrifices for other people, for other sinners, but not for himself because he's sin sinless. He, doesn't, he didn't ever offer a sacrifice for himself. Didn't need to. High priest did, though. Leviticus 16.6, 6, Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. For himself and his household. Aaron had to present a bull to take away ritually his sins. This was on the Day of Atonement. So once more, Jesus didn't have to do that. So once more, we see the superiority of Jesus over the Aaronic priesthood. Now here are four essential ways Jesus' sacrifice was different than that of the Levitical high priest. Number one, he offered no sacrifice for himself. Only the people. Jesus did that. Number two, Jesus did not offer up a sacrifice annually, but he did it once for all. Number three, Jesus didn't offer up bulls and goats, but rather he offered up himself. Number four, Jesus didn't sacrifice for just one person, but for the whole elect, everybody. High priest offers up a bull for himself, and I guess for the whole sins of the people. But, but at any rate, that shows the superiority of Jesus over Aaron. Now we have a little technical problem here. Verse 27 says, he, that's Jesus, doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do. Actually, the high priest didn't offer sacrifices every day. The common priest, the ordinary priest, offered sacrifices every day. The famous morning and evening sacrifices about 9 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon. They offered sacrifices every day. The high priest didn't do that. The way you answer that, according to Clark, I think it is. He said, yeah, Adam Clark. He says the high priest was in charge of the common priest through daily sacrifice. So the high priest was doing it through, through doing the daily sacrifices through agents. And I think that's the simplest way to handle that. Here's the quote from Clark. Though the high priest offered the great atonement only once in the year, yet in the Jewish services there was a daily acknowledgment of sin and a daily sacrifice offered by the priest at whose head was the high priest for their own sins and the sins of the people. There's another way to try to handle that, which I really don't like. You could say that the high priest represents the whole, excuse me, you could say that every day refers only to Christ, not the high priest. This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea, so it would read like this. He, Jesus, doesn't have to offer sacrifices every day as high priests have to offer sacrifices. But you don't, you don't carry the every day to the high priests. He doesn't have to, to the high priest, excuse me. So let me read it again. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices every day, Jesus doesn't, as high priests have to offer sacrifices. 
and so you just don't distribute the adjective to from Jesus to the to the high priest. You just say every day. Jesus doesn't have to offer sacrifices every day like the ordinary priests do. As high priests have to offer sacrifices understood on the Day of Atonement. That could do it, but I don't, I don't like that. I think it's a little clumsy. I think it's better to say the high priest were in charge here. Now, the, Aaron had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Leviticus 16.6, which I've already read, Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself. The rabbi said that if a priest neglected his own expiatory sacrifice, he would be killed. Serious business. To neglect that sacrifice, you died if you were the high priest. Now, Jesus offered his sacrifice once for all, not annually, not daily, once for all. Now, there's two ways you can read that. Option number one, you can say Jesus offered a sacrifice once for all time. And I think that's it because of the context. See, every day, you know, every day, every day. He doesn't need to offer up sacrifices every day, but Jesus did this once for all. So, you know, the idea of time there means Jesus did it at one time, once for all, when he died on the cross. You could read it this way. Jesus died once for all, once for all people. And then you could go from there and say, see there, Jesus died for everybody in the world. And now we've got the Armenian idea of universal atonement. Well, no. I don't know what to say. You want to argue universal atonement, you need to find some other stronger verses than that one. Then they are other stronger verses. This is not. This is talking about he offered it for once for all time. Now, this is a famous verse when dealing with Catholicism because the idea of Catholics that the Mass re-sacrifices Jesus. Every time you offer a Mass, you, 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 Jesus forgives you for your sins, so you're re-sacrificing Christ. The Catholics say that Jesus has sacrificed every time the Mass is offered which contradicts once for all, because Jesus did it once. You don't need to sacrifice him again. As Steve Ackerson says, the Catholics make a mess of the Mass. My good friend Steve Ackerson loves turns of phrases and puns. Now, I did read one time by a sophisticated Catholic theologian that that's not what the Catholics really say. I'll leave that to you if you want to investigate that further, but whatever they say, if they do say that Jesus is sacrificed over and over again in the Mass, that ain't true. Because Jesus died once for all. 728. And we'll finish this audio. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak. But the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. How are these Levitical high priests, these ironic high priests, how are they weak? Were they weak in two ways? They're, they have sin weakness and mortal weakness. They high priests are sinners and they're going to die. Because the wages of sin is death. But the promise of the oath, that would be the oath that Machilzadek priests are appointed by oath. I have sworn by an oath and will not take it back that you are a priest after the order of Machilzadek, Psalm 110.4. Let me read it again. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back forever. You are a priest like Machilzadek. Okay, but the promise of the oath, that's the oath talking about. David making that, quoting God is making a, an oath about the order of Machilzadek which came after the law. That's because David was, what, roughly 80, 1,000. The law was roughly 80, 1,500. Excuse me, not A.D. The law was, David was roughly 1,000 B.C., and the law was roughly 1,500 B.C. So that promise of the oath came after the law because David came after Moses, which came after the law. This law appoints a son. Oh, the, this, not the law, excuse me, not this law, but the promise that we see in Psalm 110.4 appoints a son who has been perfected forever. A son as opposed to a priest. A son, of course, is superior to a mere priest. Now, this son has been perfected forever. That means Jesus is morally perfect without sin. He's eternal. 
He has no moral weakness. So the problem with Aaron is that he was a sinner that was going to die. It's not present in Jesus' case because Jesus is morally perfect without sin, and he's eternal. He's not never going to die. So the implications of this, they, that those of the Bechizeldeck order, i.e. Christians, they are not under the Levitical order. Here's a quote from Steve Ackerson. Quote, the New Covenant believers are not under the law of Moses in any way, shape, form, or fashion. It is quite true that what was moral then is moral now because of this. The ethical aspects of the law of Moses have indeed been renewed in the New Covenant. Our covenant is the New Covenant, not Sinai, and our law is the law of Christ. Our starting point for ethics must be Jesus, not Moses. Now, of course, that's a great New Covenant the theology quotation, of which I agree with, and that's why I quoted it. So let's summarize this last part of chapter 7. Why is the Melchizedek priesthood better than the Levitical priesthood? Number one, the Melchizedek priesthood can make one perfect. The Levitical priesthood cannot. That's verses 11 and 25. Number two, the Melchizedek priest never dies, but the Levitical high priest does die. That's verses 15, 16, 17, and 23. Point number three in our summary, Melchizedek, the Melchizedek priest was appointed by God's oath in verses 20 and 21. Levitical priests were merely appointed by the Mosaic law without an oath. So the author of Hebrews has beat this horse pretty dead. Jesus is superior to Jesus is, a, is of the order of Melchizedek, which is entirely superior to the order of Aaron. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished with chapter 7. In our next audio, we'll take up chapter 8, which consists merely of 13 verses. And in chapter 8, we see the author is saying that not only do we have a superior high priest now, we have a superior covenant now. And so the author will discuss how the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.